This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. It's the most local time of the... I apologize for singing. Is, is that not how the song goes? Well, right now, that's exactly how the song goes. It is the most local time of the year. Huh? Is this because people are saying that they don't plan to travel as much over the holidays? Is this because there's talk and there is a new poll that we'll discuss tomorrow on London Live that says three in four Canadians are looking for less interprovincial travel? No, no. Has nothing to do with either of those things. No, it is the most local time of the year thanks to a brand new partnership between Tech Alliance of Southwestern Ontario and all kinds of municipalities and organizations, including downtown London and Middlesex County Tourism and the St. Thomas Downtown Development Board and the Municipality of Blue Water and the Chamber of Commerce in Bayfield and area. I mean, we're talking about a lot of partnerships that are creating a whole lot of new ways to see what we have in this area. So let's figure out what is happening here. Joining us is Karen Chalmers, Director of Partnerships. So I'm thinking Karen has had a big role in this with Tech Alliance. Karen, thank you for being here. Good, morning. Good afternoon, Mike. Nice to, nice to be here. I'm very excited about the most local time of the year, as you can understand, and especially on the day where we've had so much beautiful white stuff to celebrate the holidays. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I heard anybody who was shoveling. They weren't making celebratory noises, but I know exactly what you mean. There are times in southwestern Ontario, and last year I'm pretty sure was one of those times when you're walking around and you're kind of checking the date and it's... uh... Hmm, it's December 21st, and it's pretty green and brown. I think it was even green last year. And uh, I don't know if what we've received so far and what we're still supposed to get is going anywhere. So, sure, let's get into the spirit of having everything coated in white and ice. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what all of these partnerships mean. What have you created? So we have created a festive augmented reality experience that's going to be in the downtown core of London, Strathroy, St. Thomas, and Bayfield, beginning on December 10th and running through to the new year. It's an augmented experience where you can walk along the sidewalk and using your phone through the Engage Art app, you'll be able to engage in a joyful and interactive holiday experience. Hey, this this is great. So, I mean, if we picture there are museums that will do this sometimes where you can hook in on your phone and as you walk around, you're going to get as much or as little information as you want. So we we grab our phones, we go to these locations, so we're physically going there? Yeah, so in London, uh, you would specifically start at uh, north end of Victoria Park at Speaker's Corner. And you would travel north along Richmond Street to Oxford Street with your phone in hand, the Engage app loaded. And um, you would experience, you know, a a variety of different holiday interactions. So you might find a snowball mini game, for instance, or an interaction with the man in red, for instance. Um, Oh, we're going to be celebrating the celebration of lights of Hanukkah. So there's it's a multi-holiday experience that takes you along the footpath 
between the park and Oxford Street along Richmond. And we've been partnering specifically with downtown London and London um, and Digital Main Street across all of the regions to to bring this um, collaborative community engagement together. And it sounds very safe. It sounds like you go with people who you hang out with on a regular basis, like the ones who live in your home, and you can distance yourself as you walk down the street. So so that's not hard. This sounds very COVID-friendly. Yeah, yeah, it very much is. Obviously, you know, we've had um, a lot of things uh, canceled over the region in this period of time where we have large groups of people come together. But partaking in the most local time of the year with the Engage Art app is a safe and responsible way to enjoy the holidays while shopping local uh, with the whole family. And, you know, through our Digital Main Street program, you know, we had a, a mandate to really kind of bring together our communities and our regions and understand and recognize some of the biggest problems. And, of course, for them, they identified foot traffic, tourism, and shopping local challenges. And we um, brought a technology partner through XR Studios and their Engage Art app to, um, you know, kind of look at and help change those those issues that they were identified from our partners. Karen Chalmers joining us, Director of Partnerships with Tech Alliance, as we look at augmented reality, which, hey, doesn't that sound like a thing that we'd all like to do in 2020? If you can augment my reality, I am ready for that to happen. And in this case, it brings people downtown. So, Karen, in talking about some of the things that you'll run into, you mentioned, say, a a snowball fight or something like that. We don't have to actually watch out for physical snowballs. This stuff's on our phone. Correct. Correct. This is all augmented reality. So very similar to if you experienced uh, the Pokemon Go craze a few years ago, it'd all be through your phone. And uh, it's going to be a great way for families to enjoy uh, something that's festive and holiday specific while walking the streets of downtown. And the, the best part is that the app is free to download. You just go on your you know, app store, if it's Google or iPhone, and um, search up Engage Art. And it should be easy to to download. It's free, available to anybody that has a phone. Outstanding. And then it gives people who, maybe like me, don't always like to do all of the shopping, just just some of the shopping, and then eh, you need a little break from the shopping. I could go outside and I could play this while other people were doing the shopping. Precisely. (laughs) That's very nice. I'm liking this more and more as we go along. Is this something that has happened in other municipalities? So, yeah. So this is happening in Strathroy and St. Thomas and Bayfield as well. Um, It's the same experience in all of those cities so that, um, you know, we can spread the joy across the region. Fantastic. Well, Karen, thank you so much for describing it for us and for being a part of getting this together. Because, again, augmenting a reality in 2020 is a necessity. And uh, this sounds like a lot of fun. Really appreciate the time. Thanks so much, Mike. Appreciate it. That is Karen Chalmers, Director of Partnerships with Tech Alliance. See, it's like Pokemon Go. Did you ever play that? It was easy to get into it. And you wander around, and remember for a while, you'd be in Victoria Park, and you look over, and you've got five people huddled together, and they're all looking down at their phones, and you think, what? what's going on? What, what's happening over there? And then you realize, oh, they're catching a 
Persnickety, or I don't know what the names of Pokemon characters are, but they're catching one of the... Gotta catch them all. They're catching one of those. This same kind of thing, where it's augmented reality in front of you. So stay on the sidewalk. That's that's a good, important thing to do. But what a great way to bring people to the downtown core safely and give them activities because that is a major issue right now is that foot traffic that used to exist downtown that a lot of the store owners absolutely rely on now is not there and talk to anybody who is in the downtown core of london especially with more and more people not working downtown working remotely you take away that kind of traffic whether it is for lunches or even at this time of year if you were on a lunch break what are you going to do you know, run over and get a little shopping done, and then you get back. It was all there, and now that's being done in different ways. That's why we were stressing yesterday for Cyber Monday, don't do it the easy way, do it the local way, where you find whatever product it is you're going to buy, then you find the nearest retailer, and you use their website. Maybe you can't give them foot traffic into the store, but at least make use of their website, at least buy from them, as opposed to buying from one source that is really, really big and starts with an A. So in this case, just like Pokemon Go, you run into a snowball fight, you run into a guy in a red suit. This uh, this is good. I like it. Even if we weren't in a pandemic, we would be entering a time where you look at temperatures, and those temperatures are not 18 degrees Celsius overnight, where overnight we're starting to dip down below zero. This morning, if you woke up early enough, it was below zero. And we know that we still have a lot of people in our community who are not inside, no matter what the temperature is. If it's 18, if it's 38, if it's minus 8. They are outside. And yesterday, we had a plan unveiled that will hopefully assist those vulnerable members of our community through the winter months. And whether those winter months are here to stay right now, it's not like the temperature is going up to double digits tomorrow or expected to go up there later this week, as far as the eye can see. It's going to be about what it is. Joining us to talk about what this means is Kevin Dickens. Kevin is the Acting Managing Director of Housing, Social Services, and the Dearness Home. Kevin, thanks for being here. How's Tuesday going? Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. This was something that was talked about at length yesterday, but we wanted to hit on on some things in this. We've got a number of people who live life homeless in our city. And when you look at kind of the plan that has been put in place, what is it that jumps off the page at you as being, okay, this is this is something that needed to happen? Well, I mean, you touched on it off the top. The weather is turning cold, has turned cold. There's an abundance of snow today. Uh, this is the second major snow event we've had in the last uh, couple of weeks. So for us, what jumps off the page is we need to enact we need to act in an emergency response manner, uh, and we need to create something that's temporary, but it, it's something that we act quickly on. And I think what we've proposed and what we're proposing to committee later today is a plan that is far from perfect. It's a plan that will not solve homelessness this winter, but it will absolutely provide life-saving measures 
to help people get out of the frigid weather and out of the cold. Um, providing day space is, a, is something that is critically needed. Uh, COVID has uh, exacerbated the problems that we're facing with agencies not, in, not able to provide the same level or volume of daytime activity or programming that they would have before COVID, or some organizations temporarily closing their daytime activity altogether. So creating space for people to go, connect with services, socialize, feel a part of something is absolutely critical uh, as part of this plan. And it's what we hear from the community on a daily basis. Beyond that, giving a place for people to sleep overnight uh, where it's warm, dry, uh, it, it's secure, it's safe. Uh, that stuff is, is critically important at this point. We've heard emergency shelters and that is is in what will be pitched today presented today how would those work well what we wanted to do is find something that we can move quickly on we did look at all kinds of options in terms of uh, commercial space or vacant buildings um, but there was nothing we came across uh, that was a turnkey solution Um, so what we're looking at is using uh, a portable style uh, emergency shelter so a long, fully enclosed, fully heated uh, trailer uh, with the appropriate emergency exits, fire prevention uh, measures in place, uh, safe security lighting, uh, fully staffed 24-7. So these portables are something you might see at a construction site or at an elementary school. They'll be similar to those. We are working with a number of vendors to uh, nail down an appropriate product uh, that's going to meet our needs. But we see ourselves being able to sleep between 7 and 10 people with the proper physical barriers in place uh, for both privacy and to prevent the spread of COVID uh, so that we can house uh, roughly about 30 people per overnight location. Okay. And in terms of housing 30 people, I mean, it's difficult to know how many people are in need of that kind of shelter. How much assistance does that tend to provide? Yeah, so our numbers, um, our database tells us that the number of people sleeping unsheltered this winter is up from last winter, um, due in large part to the fact that our emergency shelters that do exist are unable to accommodate everybody due to the physical distancing requirements and the, and the new legislation around congregate living settings. Um, so we're looking at between 115 and 120 people that uh, at last count are sleeping unsheltered. An updated number is probably going to bring that figure down quite a bit, um, given the fact that some people have already started to transition to other places to stay. uh, And we know some will also make their way indoors through a number of channels. What we're looking at is this winter plan that we're presenting is the latest version of, of everything we've been trying to do since March. It's not the only plan. It's not the only thing we've been doing, but it's in addition to everything else. So, We've been increasing the use of hotel rooms. We are looking at uh, transitional housing options. We're going to be maximizing a head lease program that council endorsed. We have overnight resting spaces now that we're going to expand. Uh, We're working with community organizations around uh, rental subsidies so we can move people directly into apartments. This piece will help fill the gap of what's left over. We're talking with Kevin Dickens, Acting Managing Director of Housing, Social Services, and the Dearness Home, and we're looking at a presentation that will be made today in light of a plan that was essentially unveiled yesterday to look at how we deal with people who are homeless right now, given the fact that we can't house as many people 
because of spacing and because of COVID-19. So what happens there? Kevin, you mentioned the database, and we've talked about this before. Tell us how that tool is working. I'll tell you, data is key. Um, without data, we are trying to make policy in the dark, and the data is, uh, is incredibly important. So we have a quality by name list uh, that gets updated uh, almost daily every time we come in contact with somebody. Uh, we're able, our outreach teams in the community are able to uh, update the database with uh, last known contacts. So we can actually run reports to see how often somebody engages with our sector or with our system, if they've been in shelter before for how long and when the last time was. Are they connected to social assistance, either through Ontario Works or ODSP? Um, so we can really start to create a profile for every single individual. We can see the number of times, and we have people staying now in the valley that have been housed um, you know, numerous times. So we can see where people come into the system and how long they stay and when they disengage uh, and, and in which ways they actually engage with us. So that allows us to actually tailor the supports determine the level of care, the level of acuity that a person needs or requires, um, and then and then provide an intervention that meets their needs. Not everybody's going to need all-day, everyday support. Some might need light touches, and our, our data allows us to make informed decisions on that front. Excellent. So in making the presentation today, is this about finding funding, or is there more to it? It's not about finding funding per se. We, um, we are going to be leveraging provincial and federal uh, one-time dollars that have been provided to the City of London. Uh, we are going to be relying on some of our uh, municipal dollars as well that are allocated. Uh, we are taking an enterprise-wide approach to this, meaning every single service area at the City of London has been involved in getting this plan to the point it's at now and will certainly be involved in bringing it to life. Uh, but they're also looking at uh, financial contributions that are flexible enough to make and reallocate to fund this. If we find ourselves um, into a budget crunch in 2021 as part of this response, we would be seeking a source of funding. Um, Our finance team had taken forward a a report earlier uh, this fall. Uh, We'd be looking to to source funding from some of those reserve funds uh, if there is any cost overrun. What we're proposing to council is a worst-case scenario capital budget. Uh, Some of those costs are already starting to come down as the details start to flush out in this plan. So we're confident we'll be able to deliver it on budget. Um, But what we want to do is we want this to be before council. They've made some significant uh, investments in housing and homelessness this year and across the multi-year budget. And we want them to fully endorse this and to see that this is a community response. It is not a municipally owned response. Uh, In fact, we don't do any of this if we don't have the staffing support from a number of community organizations. And, and frankly, this is a bit of a call to action to the community and to our community partners that uh, if they can, in any which way, step up and support, we would be uh, beyond gratefully appreciative. Is that the way that we will hopefully one day find an end to homelessness? Because you've highlighted this, this is temporary. The word emergency is there for a couple of the shelters that will be used. This is not a permanent fix. Is that the road to a permanent fix? I think we're on that road now, um, but you're right. It's going to take a community lifts each other up, I think. And um, when we see people uh, like private landlords um, stepping up in overwhelming numbers to be a part of new housing programs, when we see community organizations coming together to create a coalition like the WISH Coalition has 
uh, to help us staff this. I mean, these are the ways that we work differently together and we be innovative and, and frankly, a little bit disruptive to the system uh, to, to create different results for our community. So between modular housing and rapid housing programs and rental agreements and, and new ways to support individuals, I think we are going to continue to make progress on this front. It's not, you know, homelessness is not something that we have a uh, clear um, yellow brick road to, to completion or to solve it, um, but it is going to be a community that, that makes the progress, that's for sure. Kevin, thanks for all the work that you and so many others have done in trying to get around some of the things and challenges that the pandemic has presented in all of this, and uh, good luck with the presentation later today. Uh, thank you, Mike, and thank you for uh, for those kind words. It is a full-team effort, and we've got some really good people working on this, so we're very confident about it. Keep it up, and stay safe. Thanks, Mike. That's Kevin Diggins, Acting Managing Director of Housing, Social Services, and the Dearness Home. So they will be presenting two committees later today, and it's not about securing the funding. That's that's not what it is. But as Kevin says, this this is a great call to action. And when you say, here's what we've created, here's what we've had to do, here are the situations that some individuals are facing, that's the call to action. What what can we do? How do we continue on this road? As Kevin points out, it's not a yellow brick road. This is not an easy, this is not follow the yellow brick road and you'll get to the Wizard of Oz. No, that's not what this is at all. This is a road that an entire community has to be on. And, and if somebody has the ability to assist in one way and, and they're able to do that, well, then, then that makes a difference. And that kind of pushes things ahead on that road. Human immunodeficiency virus infection. Acquired immune deficiency syndrome. We don't hear those words very often. We hear instead HIV AIDS. Today is World AIDS Day. And if we look at how AIDS has progressed since first being identified and it kind of goes in a couple of different directions as to when actually that was but sometime around the very early 80s somebody put a name on HIV and AIDS we have seen all kinds of things take place we have seen the growth of stigma around HIV and AIDS we have seen a lot of activism that has helped to reduce that stigma, but it's still there. This was originally thought to be something that was in certain communities, gay communities, that that's where the spread was coming from, and it was realized very quickly that no, no, that's that's not right. Um, other communities that or other individuals that sometimes get put into that same sort of stigma that, well, it, I don't have to worry about that. It's in that particular part of the world. People who wind up being intravenous drug users. Well, no, that that's not completely accurate either. And that's why we have had to have this, this stigma addressed. That's why we have had a number of individuals come together and become activists and say, no, this we've got to clear this up. We've got to look at this. And we've got to make a difference for those who wind up being targeted because 
it's well you know that that's where hiv is that's where aids is and when you look at how things have developed and you look at where we sit now aids as much as it might not be a headline is still one of those diseases that is very prominent very prevalent um if you look and these are u.s numbers if you look at 2018 um around the world we have 37.9 million people living with hiv resulting in 770,000 deaths and that's you know those those are are very big numbers um you take a look at at new cases in 2018 1.7 million new cases so this is something that even four decades after we could first say there is something called hiv and aids and we need to know about it four decades later we're still dealing with those kinds of numbers and we sit here in a pandemic and we've watched science do some pretty incredible things so far if all of these vaccines hold right and you think, wow, they, they did that in a matter of months. HIV and AIDS, that has been around for four decades since it was first documented. And we still don't have something that says, oh, you have contracted HIV or HIV has turned into full-blown AIDS. Don't worry. Here, here's a shot. Here's a vaccine. Everything has been taken care of. We don't have that. And it's one of those things that maybe makes you wonder as to why, why we do not have that. Well, someone who has been very important in documenting the activism that has existed in relation to HIV and AIDS joins us now on World AIDS Day. Dr. Alexis Shotwell is a professor in Carleton University's Department of Sociology and Anthropology and also has worked with students and colleagues and has been a part of the AIDS Activist History Project. And Dr. Shotwell joins us now. Dr. Shotwell, thanks for being here. It's really great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Let's kind of go back in time a little bit. I mean, we have something that came onto the scene, as we say, about four decades ago, is still very prevalent in our world, and it's something that has brought with us so much stigma. Mm. When you look at the stigma, where do you feel that began? Well, I think that, uh, I think absolutely, as uh, you were saying a uh, big part of that stigma stitched together with already existing um, forms of looking down on people, uh, oppression, so um, that we had an existing group of people, most, mostly gay men, um, and then that expanded to other groups, uh, drug use, IV injection drug users, hemophiliac. So there were sort of always when we're looking at the progression of how stigma moves through the world, we can say it it connects up with already existing forms of um, of uh, oppression and of seeing people in inaccurate ways. Um, and that was definitely the case at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Um, and, and as 
HIV and AIDS were being even identified as medical realities. When we look at, at that time when we didn't realize, you know, that this existed and then all of a sudden there, there was this, this heightened awareness of HIV and AIDS, do we still have enough of an awareness or is that something that maybe we, we need to pay more attention to even more often than just on World AIDS Day? I mean, I think absolutely, you know, one of the ongoing uh, slogans that is still used is that AIDS is not over and neither are we. And that's something that people who are active in um, AIDS solidarity, people who are pos- who have been living positive, right, living with HIV and AIDS for many years now, um, always remind us that uh, this is an ongoing situation and something that continues to be a um, something that could be transformed, right? So we've made a lot of progress in thinking about uh, what HIV is, what AIDS is, in reducing the stigma, um, but we can always make more. Um, so one of the main things that I learned from doing this history of AIDS activism in Canada, which hadn't been done, uh, there was just almost nothing that anyone had um, done to trace and remember the incredible work that activists did, is we now live with amazing um, gifts that AIDS activists gave us. So here in Ontario, we have access to Trillium drug funding, which was uh, it's a way that people with unusual illnesses or who can't afford medication access care. And that was entirely won by AIDS activists who shared that with the people of the province of Ontario. And we don't remember that. So it's not just that we're living with the inheritances of stigma that we need to still fight. We also benefit from the inheritances of care and solidarity and helping each other that AIDS activists and people living with HIV and AIDS gave us. Um, And that's been so inspiring to look at as we look at the COVID epidemic too. So on World AIDS Day, I really like us to think not just about the harm and the oppression that continues, but also about the incredible strength and generosity that people uh, living with HIV and AIDS offered and still offer to one another. That is great. We are talking with Dr. Alexis Shotwell, professor in Carleton University's Department of Sociology and Anthropology, and also a co-investigator of the AIDS Activist History Project. Are there some examples you can cite? Because those are stories, like you say, that hadn't been told, and you've been able to to find some of those stories. Anything come to mind that you say, that's one that we need to know more about? Mm. Well, so, I mean, it's one of the things that's been amazing about hearing these stories and listening to people is, and again, I can't help but be reflecting on it um, today in our current experience of this pandemic. Um, So one of the things that... Uh, was incredible to learn about was the inc- the fierceness with which people took care of each other. Um, and some of that happened where there were drugs that were approved by the Federal Drug Administration in the U.S. that were not approved in Canada, um, but they weren't exactly illegal. And people would bring them across the border. They learned how to use them properly and carefully. Uh, and and administered life-saving drugs to each other in illicit um, but incredibly moving ways. 
um, and eventually science caught up to them. And then those same drugs, uh, there was one that you could inhale that would keep people from dying of one of the really horrific pneumonias that was a main killer of people with HIV and AIDS in that moment. So there are things like that, just direct um, drug provision to each other. Um, incredible stories of changing legislation. So there were these very, seems boring, you know, but people got together and said, look, there is legislation on the books that would allow people to have access to drugs that we know will save their lives. We just need to get that legislation enacted. And they did banner drops in government, they did protests, and they did uh, really steady, daily, weekly education of government officials who could transform the standards of medical care. So just um, reading any of the um, transcripts that we've put up, listening to people talk about what they did, I'm always amazed by their steadiness over the long term, you know. And the other thing that I, um, I think of on World AIDS Day is the personal quality. So it's, it's hard for us to remember now, maybe, but there was a time when people refused to touch people who had HIV or were living with AIDS. And many of the AIDS activists would go from doing this kind of work on policy and legislature and they would go into the hospital and hug someone who the doctors were refusing to touch. So it was all of those different things, right? The, the procedural and the personal. Um, and really coming back to that quality of how do we know the science, right? Hugging someone is not going to transmit HIV or AIDS. Um, it's going to give them a connection for life, right? So really thinking about how do we know the realities of medicine and take care of each other. Um, and that continues to be a good lesson for us. Absolutely. Dr. Alexis Shotwell joining us, professor in Carleton University's Department of Sociology and Anthropology. It, not long after people started hearing HIV and AIDS, that question, well, can you get AIDS from a toilet seat? All of all of those things, all of those stigmas that came and, and hopefully are now gone because that's something that you you absolutely need to fight through, the, the truth and the science of it as opposed to, well, I heard this. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's a lesson we can learn from looking back through the history of AIDS and, and HIV. Yeah. And we can also learn a lot about, we talked to a lot of doctors who were right at the forefront of HIV and AIDS research and treatment. And, you know, everything changed, right? It, it changed year by year as people understood the illness better. I mean, the activists really understood um, better than many medical professionals earlier what was happening. Um, but then all of those people worked together. So... Um, so also we can learn so much about the history of how taking care of each other is a process of transformation, um, that medicine changes, our forms of care change. And, and then we can say, you know, in 1996, when they began using uh, highly active retro antiretroviral treatments, which transformed people's scale of life, right? So now 
living with HIV and AIDS is a, it's a chronic condition if you have access to medication. And uh, what that allows us to look at is how do we provide access to the medication that everyone needs, which allows us to say, how do we think about healthcare as a right and as something that is really complicated and really simple, um, right? It's not just about the medication. It's about access to the medication and access to good food and a place to live. And so looking at AIDS now, all of those questions about health and how people really flourish and how we set up a society that encourages everyone to flourish, that can also be a good cue for us to think about those questions every day of the year. Fantastic points. Dr. Alexis Shotwell with us, professor in Carleton University's Department of Sociology and Anthropology. Dr. Shotwell, really appreciate your time and your insight today. If somebody wanted to learn more about the AIDS Activist History Project, is there somewhere we can send them? Please send them to our website. is AIDSActivistHistory.ca. Um, lots of incredible stories we've put up um, hundreds of interviews there in their entirety. So you can really hear what people did in their own words. Um, And then, of course, there's just so many wonderful people living with AIDS organizations in cities all over the province. Um, So people can also learn from the people who are continuing to do this work, not just the the ones we talked to who were doing it, um, you know, all these years ago. It continues. Sure thing. Dr. Shotwell, please keep safe. Thanks again. You too. Thanks so much, Mike. That's Dr. Alexis Shotwell from Carleton University, and the ability to look back. We'll get this ability one day with the pandemic that we're in and what you learn from things. And how many times have you realized that if you look back through what HIV and AIDS has done, that you think, okay, well, maybe this this changes the reason why we just don't jump to conclusions. Maybe this changes the hey if you've got money you're going to be okay but where does healthcare actually sit and maybe that's not as big a question in canada sometimes but it is still a question in canada when we talk about things like two tiers and we talk about people who will be able to go and and seek other treatments that exist in other places These are things that the study of HIV and AIDS certainly looks at. The idea that activism has changed legislation, and it wasn't activism of just standing outside and protesting. No, this was about educating. This was about saying to the politicians who had the ability to create or alter legislation, here is what is happening, please. And they did it. Week after week after week, here is what's happening. And eventually somebody went, you know what, I think this is what's happening. And let's look into this. And they did see changes to some of that legislation. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.